1: Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. This week it's part two of the A to Z of snooker. In the previous edition we went from A to D. This week we've made it through from E to I. I've been joined by Neil Folds for the duration. Phil Yates had to duck out about halfway through. Alan McManus joined us a bit late. Hope you enjoy it. So E is for 80s, as in the 1980s. Obviously the boom period in the UK... Um, still, sort of romanticised by people of a certain age, but I guess it's because if you sort of lived through that era, you couldn't get away from snooker. I mean, obviously Neil, you were a top player during it. What were your sort of memories of being a celebrity, really?
2: Well, I think I think I must be very fortunate to have played snooker during that era because it was the best time to be playing. You know, I mean, I turned pro, I was just just nineteen, coming up twenty. So I played through the, um, from 84 onwards, right through that era. Um, the, best, the best times of, of, of my playing life, for sure, you know, and the game was big. There wasn't, you know, there the wasn't the same, um, without putting the other side to it, there wasn't the same options te- for, for mm. television, was there? You know, there were four, three or four channels, four, I think, I think Channel 4 was invented then. Um, and it was live sport when you weren't seeing much live sport. You never used to see live football, did you, for instance, mm. at that time? Right. So, yeah, very little. The FA Cup final yeah, yeah, was a yeah. bigot in the year than the Champions League final. But so so you watching live sport and also there were heroes and villains in the game and I think that's what people loved, you know. I mean without going on about it, at the time when I beat Alex Higgins, i have got loads of males. Some was like ah, how dare you beat Alex <laughs> and some saying, Wonderful, great glad you beat him didn 't like him, so that was I was lucky to be involved in all that side of it, you know, but there were the big rivalries you know in the game and, and people loved it. You watched Snooker because you wanted someone to win and you wanted someone to lose. Mm. I mean as much as I love all the amb- ambassadors in the game now, and there are some as we know um, you know, if everyone 's a nice consummate, polished professional playing another consummate polished professional. People that don't really have that same age when they watch it, but that was all there then, you know. And the game was big, and Barry um, had had his matchroom and uh, and we played snooker all over the world. So, yeah, the 80s were big, and I was I feel very fortunate to have been some kind of a part of it, albeit not uh, you know, not a Jimmy White big part of it, but I did play my part, and I was lucky enough to be there.
1: The thing is, I think sports coverage now on the telly is better than ever, like what Sky and Eurosport and, and all the other channels do. But when it was just BBC and ITV, sports stars were proper stars. Everybody knew them.
0: Yeah, I mean, I remember when the, the theme music used to come on It was like, oh, fantastic, okay. you know, it's the Crucible or, or, or whatever I mean, I break the 80s into two very different segments really One negative, one positive I mean, as you say, great word to describe it, romanticised The standard then <clears> was pretty, you know, well below what it is now In terms of the lower rank players yeah. There's no doubt about it I mean, they were nowhere near the guys now Obviously the top end, very different. I think one of the great things that made it though was that most of the players, or certainly a very large proportion of them, had had a life before snooker. They understood what it was like to have a job and so they really appreciated what they were actually doing. You know, people like Ryan and Spencer and... Well, the list goes on and on and on. They'd had jobs, they knew how tough it was in the real world. So suddenly they were placed in this fantasy
1: world and, you know, that's what made it so good. But also, it permeated the culture, didn't it? Because, I mean, Steve, for example, went on the Morecambe & Wise show, the biggest show on TV, <coughs> and lots of other shows, and snooker players were like, I suppose, the, the comparison now is people on reality TV. You, you just knew them. You knew yeah. their faces, they were there in the culture. In very, the,
2: very interesting way of putting it. Yeah, it, is, it was like reality TV, wasn't it? You know, because uh, um, of that. You know, and interestingly, I know you're going to say something else now, but you could probably get a ticket to go to the Crucible a lot easier than you can now. Strangely enough, you know, it wasn't. A, you know, it wasn't the, the same. Uh, you know, like people just desperately trying to get in to see it. It was more on the television. It was more. It wasn't so much for the snooker fans as it is now. A lot of it. It was just for the general public. They just loved the game, didn't they? And and it was.
0: A real education for me, actually. One specific thing about the '80s that taught me a lot about British society, and and not a a part of it I actually like, is the fact that Steve Davis was the actual (coughs) model professional. He was brilliant at the game. He did absolutely nothing wrong whatsoever on the table, and so many people wanted him to lose. It was like this sort of jealous collective streak in people. You know, he's winning everything. We don't like that. And I remember being, you know, a youngster then thinking, well. Why don't they like him? Because what's he, what's he ever done to them? All he's done is do positive things. And yet, it creates that negative
2: vibe. Do you remember the, um, the Masters match between Alex Higgins and Steve Davis uh, at uh, the conference centre? And it was best of nine those days. And it was 4-4. Both players left the arena. Um, bear in mind, this was in London. You know This is where Steve, uh, a lot of his friends would have been around there. Um, it's, Alex came back to a big cheer. When Steve came back in, they booed him. They booed him A lot of About literally Hundreds of people Booed him What has Steve Ever done wrong To deserve it Except just be Really good at what he did That was was all it was
1: I think as well That the sort of The way it was treated By TV It was kind of More innocent I mean now Everything is hyped In every sport Everything is treated Like the biggest deal ever Because of course The TV companies Are trying to keep viewers So at the start Of a a, a normal snooker program There'll be like a, A minute long Sort of package Which by the way Is taking about Three hours to put together By the sound to people who do it but in those days I was watching on YouTube the end of the 84 final when Davies beat Jimmy '1816. 16 they been a great comeback and it, it, there's no arena interview they don't go in the arena interview it just cuts back to the studio um, quite an anonymous studio it was done in the practice room in those days there's Viney I think it's Virgo and Willie Thorne just sat there and they talk about the match, and then there's a plate of sandwiches just on the table. <laughs> and David said, because I'd overrun the slot, David Vine said, yeah, the floor manager brought us um, some sandwiches to eat. It's all very kind of, it's not like the world final at all. It's just, OK, well, we've done that, and it's kind of over. But what was funny was he then said, um, well, it's a great final, and next year's we'll have to go some to beat this. Well, of course, next year's was 1985. And, and inevitably we we're going to mention that, Phil. I mean, that, that was the kind of zenith of the whole soap opera, wasn't it? And it was the yoke that
0: continues to be around the neck of Snooker because people always say, you know, if you quote a viewing figure to them, which is a very good figure, they'll say, yeah, but it's not 18.4 million or whatever it was, you know, because that's the figure that is quoted time and time again, particularly by critics of Snooker in the media. You've got to remember back then, the three, four channels, that was his. Even though, you know, 18.4 million was still a remarkable figure. And I think it remains the largest after midnight audience for any program. Yeah, and
1: BBC2 audience. But, of yeah. course, now the world final gets 50, 60 million because it goes all around the world. Yes, exactly. So, so yeah.
2: And that's the problem, isn't yeah. it? Because people just think about it, about a UK sport. Yeah, yeah. OK, you're never going to get those figures over here. But, mm. like you say, it's watched around the world by a lot of people. So, surely that's better, isn't it? Mm.
1: You'd think so. There
0: wasn't, a single, there wasn't a single century in that final. And had it been a sort of eighteen eleven, eighteen ten Davis win, which it probably should have been, you know, no one, would have, no one would
1: ever recall it. It was just, the, the finish was just so engrossing. Yes. Okay, well, let's move on to F, which is an uh, exciting topic foul and a miss. This is the uh, the miss rule, um, which changed in the early 90s, I think, um, to the three misses and, and you lose the frame if you can see a ball directly. And it's one of those rules that has its critics. But what was interesting was a few years ago, the players were asked if they'd like to change it. There was a vote, and actually, they didn't. So whatever problems they have with it, no one could think of maybe a better way of getting round a player, I guess, just deliberately missing. Well, I'll start this, but Neil's the the real expert on this because he he played under this rule. I should just say Alan McManus is about to join us. Come on, Alan. Yeah, he'll he'll enjoy this topic, but come on. So,
0: before the rule was changed, it was abused like you would not believe I'm not going to name names Your favourite phrase Name names I'm not going to do that But it was abused
2: Name There's, names, sure Or yeah,
0: <laughs>
1: it, it ab- we'll at least write them down yeah. So we yeah. can see them
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah It was abused There's no doubt about it
1: And while the I should just r- say to Alan We're talking about the foul and a miss rule oh.
0: Yeah And while the current rule Is not
1: perfect It's infinitely better Than it was Before it was changed Infinitely better So yeah We'll throw you right in the deep end Alan You've just sat down Foul and a miss rule I mean from a player's perspective Is it
3: kind of about right do you think? I think it's perfect. Um, yeah I think it's perfect. I, I think the, the way that I, um, to prove that it's perfect, when was the last time there was a controversial ruling in a, in a big match? I can't remember one really. Um, and the players know 99.9% of the time you've got to hit the ball on unless it's like, I mean I have seen a couple of times, I remember Michaela um, when she was refereeing at the World Qualifying a few years ago and I uh, can't remember the player it might have been Jamie Jones actually um, it played out, it was a really tough one and it was a brilliant effort he didn't make contact and she didn't call a miss and it was a brilliant call and Jamie's opponent, I think it was Jamie his opponent never put up any sort of argument and uh, after the match actually I went to Michaela and I said listen I said that, well done, that was a brilliant decision that you made, um, and uh, credit to her. But it doesn't happen very often.
1: It could be, though, an argument against laying a really good snooker, because if it's an average snooker, you should escape from it, it will be called. If it's a fiendish, wild snooker, the referee might not call it, but then I suppose you could say, well, what's the point in getting in a really tough snooker? It doesn't matter to you, because you can get out of
3: it. Well, (laughs) no, No, um, I think it's a brilliant rule. I think. I think the nature of people, the nature of a lot of snooker people these days, not the players, but I know people back home and they moan about it. Oh, the miss rule's terrible. They want something to complain about, but there isn't anything to complain about with the miss rule. I think it's superb. At pro level, amateur level's different, obviously, because you don't have a referee generally, so you get arguments or put that back and all this business.
2: But at at the top level,
3: it's ideal.
1: Do you think,
3: though, Neil, that... Like you can get a
1: snooker that's worth like 40 points is yeah. that right
2: do you think? I don't know there may be a way of tweaking that but I don't know I mean it, 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 there's only so many points that you, I don't really like it when someone maybe would be 10 in front for example on one red and um, they're in a, a nasty snooker and the next thing they need snookers you know it's possible that would be a lot of, of balls missed in a row so I think that the point Alan makes is a good one that referees need to use their uh, discretion and not just blindly call a miss all the time if there's one Ball to hit, and you you get put, you miss it by a fraction, um, and it's a difficult snooker. Then it shouldn't be put back. And so Michaela did. It. I remember there was a match in the UK the year David Grace got to the semi-finals of the UK, which would have been the year Neil Robertson won it 2015, I think. Um, Martin Gould and David Grace played a match where. Um, I think in the last frame, David Grace was a very bad, very difficult snooker. I think it was Terry Camilleri who didn't call a miss, and I think it was a great decision, a bit like that. You know, whereas, uh, And after the match, I interviewed Martin Gould, because it was seen a bit controversial, because he might have won the match there and then he lost it. He said, I, I abide by the referee's decision. I thought that was very good of him, actually, and uh, I think it was a good decision. So the referees need to have the ability to to, to show discretion and make use common sense uh, on that rule I think Otherwise it's a, it, the rule works better Certainly better than when players used to deliberately miss And Phil's going to name those names yeah. in a short while Of the people that he thinks <laughs> were the offenders
3: <laughs> I, I actually just wonder uh, w- Would a good rule be Instead of three misses and you lose the frame Three misses and ball in hand When there's a full ball hmm, on
1: I was wondering that. I've, I, was, I was watching the snooker last night um, It was Coran Wilson, Judd Trump as we record this And I was kind of just idly thinking that Would that actually be a better solution It would speed things up
2: You've, I don't know. What you've got to do, I think, you've got to try it for a tournament. Yeah. Maybe not the World Championships of the UK, a tournament, uh, and say, because there's always going to be something you hadn't thought. To, changing the rules is a very dangerous yeah. thing in any, any yeah. sport um, because you can end up with a ludicrous situation, as happening in cricket in a lot of sports. So it's worth giving it a short term go, and if it doesn't work, then you just scrap it and go back.
0: I'm too cowardly to name names, but the, the colour... <laughs> well, while this is recording, yeah. you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm singing, <laughs> singing like yeah. a canary when it's turned
1: Yeah, yeah, it. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 the colour
0: of a canary and the colour that denotes cowardice is yellow. Nice. And the one I always remember is on the yellow in a very high-profile nice segue. in yeah. the 1980s. Very high-profile. No name's going to be mentioned, and it was one of the most extraordinary things I've ever seen. Now, that would not be allowable. It would be a miss all day and every day. And that's the frame of reference. Before the rule was changed and after, what's better? And there's no doubt about it. What's better is now.
3: I actually remember my first uh, time at the Crucible. I lost to uh, the Griff. And deep in the match, it was either 12 each or or he was 12-11 in front. And he he played a miss. He didn't play a deliberate miss as such, but he played it. There was about six reds on and he played a gap that Terry can find and the, the cue balls come back into bulk but now it would go back 1 million percent and I'm not saying it cost me the match because it didn't but it, it it certainly helped me losing the match in the end so, but he wouldn't have gotten away with that now but that he, Terry didn't do anything wrong I'm not blaming
0: the, the people who, who took advantage of the rule because probably everybody did but the point was the rule was to be taken advantage of and now you can't take advantage of it
1: no Okay, before I call a miss, let's move on to G. Now, G, and we're, we're fine ones to talk, G is for geeks. And what I mean by geeks, I want to mention some of the people who have helped uh, the game in terms of what they do online. Um, the first two snooker websites that I was aware of, one was Global Snooker Centre, which Janie Watkins ran very diligently for years, before World Snooker even had a website. And if you wanted to follow like qualifying results and so on, you went on there. Um, and around the same time, Herman... Ardlan, a Norwegian, set up snooger.org, which is still running now and still a great resource. Uh, and of course, in more recent times, we have Qtracker, run by the great Ron Florax, which is an extraordinary site. Uh, incredible stuff on there. Me and Neil were looking at it last week. The, the, there was a stat on there. Um, the average century in terms of the number of centuries you've had. So, for example, if you've made one century and it was 120, or average is 120. No, why anyone needs to know that we, didn't, we couldn't work out But it was just extraordinary well, to find is, that stuff Because Ronnie
2: is nowhere near the top of that list oh. Because he's made so many and you, some of them will be hundreds You were above Ronnie I was though, above yeah. Ronnie so I think in some yeah. way I must be a better, better player Yeah in some ways
1: yeah <laughs> um, but,
2: uh, <laughs> but what I'm trying to say is
1: These people, Phil I mean I know you, you and I Are on like, these websites a lot And we should also mention Chris Downer who's less online But he does his Crucible work. So these people who in their own time And they're not getting any money for it Have helped snooker fans and indeed people within the game Do their jobs the three people you've mentioned, the, t- the two website guys and Chris danner have just improved the quality
0: of our life, it's as simple as that <laughs> they've made our job so much easier and they've made us sound so much better than we are, they've made us sound much more well informed than we are because we're getting all the stuff from them, so I thank them every single day of my life I'll give you one very topical example we were here at the Champion of Champions yesterday I went onto to QTracker to do some research on the match I was commentating on, and he's got the birthdays up there, and it's got Ian Barry Stark Brackets mm. 76 on It was Barry's birthday I went into the next room There was Barry I shook hands with him And said Happy birthday Barry He went How did you know And I said track, Tracker <laughs> You know I'd never have known In a month of Sundays Before that website mm.
1: So they're, they're absolutely brilliant And thank you And also It's like a kind of Museum of stats Isn't it You know It's all there If you want to look up At an hour, moment moment, in Your career record It's there
3: Yeah Um yeah, and, and some people, we call it havering in Scotland, like lying, um, so that, you know, some people embellish their records and say, yeah, I beat him, and I beat him. you can go, point, no you it? didn't, no you didn't, <laughs> and that has happened a lot in a couple of boys in the club. Well, what happens is, people just about,
2: add a few little stats on there, say oh, I've made four centuries in that match, you look up, they made one, and a break true. of 80, and you think, you know, well, hang on, you can't get away with that, but... Um, <laughs> look, Hold on a minute. Name names You've got to say that to him As well as me <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't leave him out He's what? not going
0: to name him But just <laughs> ask
2: him <laughs> No I mean I, Look I follow cricket And there's a guy called Andrew Sampson Who's the most brilliant Statistician in cricket He comes up with All kinds of wonderful stats And Snooker's going that way And they like doing it As you say They do it for their own interest Because some people Are very very interested in the, in the stats Some people just can't bear it And I remember being, doing, Going through the Almanac With Jimmy White at, um, For Eurosport the, the World Championships And he, stood, he looked at it and he said, "I do not want to see that because he just can't bear it. He doesn't know anything, and it, he doesn't want to know, which is fine, isn't it? He, yeah. You know, he's all over it. Some of the things in there about him, not interested. But I love it, you know, and that's great. That some people love the stats, and I think all of these people are, are just brilliant, and they, and they get so much enjoyment out of it.
3: I remember actually being in the club. It would have been early '90s, obviously pre-internet, and, uh, and as we all know, and, and the, the punters would know." One of my best mates was playing a match. It was a big match at a venue, and uh, he was playing Joe Johnson. And um, the club, the telly wasn't working or something, so we had no page three eight seven on mm. on um, CFAX or whatever it was. And uh, I had to go into the pub along the road because they had what was it? It wasn't CFAX It was uh, what, what? Anyway, and Peter, up. So, is it all right if I, um, you know, check your TV? And she said, Well, no, you need to buy a drink. <laughs> but I was in practice and it was the yeah. afternoon. Yeah, yeah. I said, OK, I'll have a fresh orange and lemonade. She gave me the clicker. I checked it and I got the result. But otherwise you yeah. couldn't. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, actually yeah. had to phone the venue. Yes. or whatever. That's right. So times have changed and for the better. Yeah. Yeah. We, have you got, the, I'm going to mention the Christmas Almanac because, Neil, it's
1: a bit like yeah, the Christmas right. Radio Times to you, isn't it? I mean, yeah. When that World Championship's on, you, you're not partied from
2: it, are you? No, that's right. And I've got my Almanac uh, already for... Um, for the, for the The Crucible In 2019 And you know Chris Downer He's updated it I guess the first time He, he did it Compiled it That was a difficult time Wasn't it yeah. um, To get it all in Now <laughs> so updating started, it, it? Yeah. Updated it Will probably take him Two or three weeks now But yeah. I think it's wonderful
1: Okay just to say Phil Yates Has to step out To do some actual work But we'll carry on with H um, It can only be for Hendry Stephen Hendry In the last podcast We talked about The great Steve Davis And all he achieved And the, the standards he set And then of course In the 90s Someone came along and set even higher standards. Incredible.
3: Yeah. Um, funny. I, I was talking to Stephen about this the other night. The, the first time I met him properly was the spring of '90. I was down at Pontins in Prestatyn, and um, well, it was it was World Championship time, and um, I had pl- I had won the Scottish Amateur Championship the, a, a few weeks before it. We were down for the home internationals, and I'd never even met Stephen. And he won the World Championship, obviously, on the Monday for his first time. We were in the cloud Bar in Pristatton, and someone tapped me on the shoulder, and, and I turned round, it was a busy, busy old place. I turned round, and it was Stephen. He'd won the World Championship the day before <laughs> for the first time, his first world title. And he, he said, hi, Alan, I'm Stephen. He shook my hand, he said, well done, <laughs> winning the Scottish Amateur. Wow. And I said... "Um." you've kind of won something like yesterday <laughs> that was quite important. And I said, you know, well done to him. That was my first sort of meeting with him. You know, it was, it
2: was cool. You know, I, I first, well, uh, the year he turned professional, he turned professional 16, didn't he? And there was a lot, I hadn't seen him play, actually. I didn't see him when he was in the Star of the Future thing at the Pontins. I'd heard he was good. Um, but there was m- mutterings that he turned professional too young. That's what they were saying. And in, in his first year, we were playing in the um, Mercantile, a, a classic which was up at uh, Warrington, and I'd won my first match. Can't remember who I played, but my next match, I'm playing for the first time ever, Silvino Francisco or Stephen Hendry. And at the time, I thought, well, I haven't played Silvino. He's a decent player. Um, been quite good if he lost, actually. You know, and play the other guy who I don't know much yeah. about Hendry. I told Stephen this story. Yeah. Um, anyway, Stephen beat him. Now that's the only time I ever beat Stephen by the way I beat him 5-4 but I had to play, the, play one of the best breaks of my life in the decider I could not believe how good he was yeah. he was just amazingly good and um, after the match I would see the press and I said "Oh, look, I can't, what a fantastic player he is and I remember Willie Thorne came up to me after and he said why, why, why are you giving that boy credit he said I don't know if he's going to be good enough <laughs> uh, see I'm naming names you see yeah, yeah. Um, and um, I said I think he's brilliant I think he's brilliant and actually Stephen's mother wrote me a letter, and said um, you were very kind to my son. It was very kind of you. She wrote me a letter, and it delivered to my house, and now she got the address. But she um, said how how kind you were to my son. So that's my first memory, and I never beat him again. So there you are. <laughs> I, so I, I didn't I, get I, the more last letters, laugh. More <laughs> no more letters. No more letters.
3: He kind of famously, as a kid, he won the Scottish Amateur Championship twice in a row. He beat uh, I think one of them he beat a guy called Stuart Nevis, and the other one he beat. Um, a a kind of legend in Scottish of Jimmy uh, Mcnellan, and the final—I don't know where it was—but the, the story goes, and Stephen was only, I think, fifteen at the time, fourteen or fifteen. Now, back then, you—you you didn't have anyone who was any, anyway, decent at that age, because it was all older guys. It was like a pub club game, and but Stephen had this talent, anyway. So he played in the the amateur final, and I think he was seven two. It was best of seventeen. I think he was six two or six one or what something like that behind, and he came off after the first session. And the legend goes that he said, "Right, I've got him now. I know how. To, I know how to beat him," yeah. and he did. He beat him. I think it was nine eight to beat him. And and th- 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 those stories kind of circulate around mm. the Scottish clubs, and we all know about them up north. And but, but I think it was amazing. I think what's
1: interesting now is like he's not often sort of lumped him with the natural talents but when you look at it he first played he was a Christmas present he got a snooker table in 1981 four years later he was a pro (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) you know he was actually and then he played at the Crucible in his first year and played a complete that was the thing with Hendry he played a completely different style of game he just went for everything didn't he and he's ushered in now this attacking era because everyone that's come through after him has tried to copy him basically yeah
2: I mean he that first season he uh, he lost to Obi Agrawal in the UK <laughs> Championship. Now, he, he was a billiards player, wasn't he? And a half-decent one. But So he, he had a long way to go then. But after that, what you realise, the man, is, he was just hard as nails on the table. Uh, completely, um, uh, I was going to say a mercenary. What do I mean by that? He only wanted to win at snooker. A bit like Steve, Steve Davis. Same mentality. The money meant nothing to him. The fame meant nothing to him. You just wanted, You get that in sport. People that just want to be the best... Yeah and they just want to stay the best, and everything that goes with it doesn't really stop them. Some people, it stops them, you know, when they get money and they drive around in a nice car, and Stephen had nice things, but you knew that wasn't what what spurred him on, and that's why he became such a great player, because he just wanted to be good at that and nothing else, you know. And the only one I can think of, there's some great players now, I think, well, Mark Selby's the nearest thing to it now. I would I would say someone that just wants to win at snooker. You know the others are great players, but they have other things in their life. I also
3: remember uh, uh, I said there the first time I met him properly. I also went and watched him do an exhibition. He must have been si- maybe seventeen. I was about fifteen, and you could see straight away. I mean, I remember it was on table thirteen in the club. Um, that I played in they did this exhibition and within the first frame I'm looking and I said, oh this guy is just ridiculous and, and you sort of a know don't you you just know it was I mean I'd seen a lot of, I was I could play a little bit I was decent. I'd seen a lot of guys who were good you know younger players coming through with the boom the boom era of the mid 80s but when I watched them live I thought oh that this is just something different.
2: But the only thing with Stephen is, you know, maybe did he retire too quickly? I mean, you know, in his last season, his last uh, tournament, he beat John Higgins in the World Championships, albeit it wasn't a great match either, actually, and lost heavily to Steve Maguire, I think, really heavily. But, you know, could he have gone on five years? Probably, if he wasn't going to be top dog, he would, the answer would be no. To be a top 16 player, top 32 player, like Steve Davis did drop down, didn't suit, doesn't suit Stephen, that's why maybe he stopped when he did.
3: I, I, yeah, I I find it amazing now when you think back to... I think I'm right in saying he's, he said he developed a, this Yip thing yeah. or whatever it was in about 2001, roughly. Tell me it was not a few years before. Uh, yeah, true. <laughs> I know. I would have won a couple of bob, But um, he, it's amazing that he almost masked it, or he hid it. Not hid it, it's, it's his property, it's his thing. But he didn't mention it for about ten years until... You know, he stopped playing in the ca- heads and chaos and all this kind of thing. So he must have really had some tough times for how good he was through the 90s. You go into the noughties and, and he, he, you know, for c- comparison with what he was doing then, it must have been torture for him, mm. in, in a way.
1: But I, I guess there would be some newer Snooker fans who did, don't really remember him <clears throat> in his prime and, and there's a tendency to kind of dismiss an era you haven't really been part of. But make no mistake, he did change the game and he was... Like Phil said in the last podcast, Davis, when he won his sixth world title, was the best thing Snooker had ever seen. There's no doubt when Hendry, probably well before he'd won his seventh, was the best. Now you can argue now maybe Ronnie Sullivan's overtaken him or whatever, but we should not detract from his achievements because they were,
3: were extraordinary. They were. I mean, I've got so many memories as, as we all do. I remember going to a Regal Masters final one year in, in, in Motherwell, and uh, Stephen played the Griff actually in the final, and he beat him ten one, and Griff was lucky to get one. <laughs> Quite honestly, he was that good. It yeah. was, it was, and you knew turning up. I remember going to watch it. You knew what the score was going to be. You knew it was going to be a landslide win, and he did it. All, he seemed to do it all the time. He was that good. Mm.
1: Let's quickly because I know you've got to go and work. Let's quickly try I. I is for India, because that's where snooker started. That's where snooker uh, was invented. That's how so the sort of mythology goes at the Uti Club. And Dennis Taylor told me, he actually went there. He was doing some <coughs> reality show uh, set in India, like the real Marigold Hotel or something. And he, they went to the Uti Club. It was a three-hour journey <laughs> to get there. He wasn't very happy when he got there, but he said uh, he played on the original table. It's been reclothed, I'm guessing, since since 1875. <laughs> but he said actually it was quite an emotional experience because you know everything that's happened since basically is down to that. And I think we probably all say that really. Um, have you have you played out there?
3: Alan? I, I I've been twice mm. for the in, the in the last probably three or four years for the Indian Open, uh, Mumbai, and can't remember the other one. Um, I didn't do very well, uh, but uh, obviously, it's got a huge billiards background yeah. with, with the the Geats, and all the guys from seventies, eighties, and, and Ferreras and all these names. That, um, although I think it's South African, it, it could be, but um, and then Pankaj, obviously, yeah. uh, Pankaj Bhani. In recent years, he I, I was actually amazed for for uh, he's obviously world champion x amount of times. And billiards, but what a snooker player he was! I thought he was superb. And you could see when you played him. I played him, I think, three times. You could tell he was a billiard player the way he played snooker. And um, they've obviously got a rich history. I, I unfortunately, as I say, have only been a couple of times. But we're all aware of it. I think everyone in snooker is. It's
2: a lot of interest in the game over there. We went over there in the eighties, or maybe, the, maybe about nineteen ninety. It was uh, one of Barry's um, trips so anyway the year I can't remember yeah, we played in Thailand Hong Kong and we finished off in India Stephen was on that trip actually because I remember he the, we played the tournament in the hotel and they actually Stephen nearly lost to a guy called Do Multani remember him he was good good player big thick glasses he had Stephen beaten um, but there was a huge you couldn't get anywhere near the table it was, there was a massive interest in the game I ended up losing to Davis in the tournament and they really appreciated good snooker, they really appreciated it. It was, it was a really good event, so that we go back I mean you think though, going back really when you think about how the game was invented, uh, there must have been drink involved. would you say <laughs> you know they 've got a few billion balls that they think we 're bored with this let 's uh, drink yeah. a bit of find Paul. You'd hope and, so, because that's uh, been a tradition in snooker as well. Well it has, <laughs> but you know they must have, they've invented a game there and they think we'll put all these balls on the table Well, it,
1: well it, it's, it's attributed to Colonel Neville Chamberlain, but he wasn't a colonel at the time, he was 19 years of age yeah. so, the, so the story goes, became a colonel later in life, and Chris Downer, who we mentioned earlier from the Crystal Almanac, he tracked tra- tra- down his grave, took a picture of his grave I don't, I'm not quite sure where it was. That's niche It uh, is very niche, very niche. But, but it's kind of, yeah, but he's like little did he know that year, like 100 and so years on we'd be sat here recording yeah. a podcast there were no podcasts so
3: how would he know yeah. no, no, but, <laughs> but it's I, co- am I, sorry am I right in thinking that the word snooker actually would they yeah. come from the army cadets or something it's, over in India it was an insult
1: um, that right. I think that the officers gave the younger like, members of the army so imagine what it could have been called yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and on, it has been called by yeah. a lot of you and on that bombshell um, the, we will conclude the A to Z of snooker will continue at some point
2: I will call upon you to do a service for
3: me. Play the Godfather,
2: now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family.
0: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2.